as Narayani was mentioning in our preparation for the meditation and for this class to come, it's very important that we approach this as if we're approaching Krishna himself, that it is through him, through that consciousness that we are receiving. As we read in our last class, as Krishna says, as you approach me, so shall I respond to you. And so I hope each of us are coming to receive directly from him, through him. Today's classes, I had a little trouble myself just putting these thoughts together. They're both very deep, but also just a little bit far from our own reality that it's hard to wrap our minds fully around it. So we'll try our best because here Krishna goes into the deeper kind of meaning of what action is. What does it really mean to act in this world? The last class, we're on chapter 4. We ended on verse 13, which was an admixture of the three gunas with the diverse karmas of individuals produces the four castes. Though I am active in creation through these influences, know that I, in myself, am ever actionless and unchanging. So we talked at that time about the concept of the dream and the dreamer. And we explained it from that perspective. You've got the consciousness that when it goes to bed, expands itself into creating the entire dream universe as varied and as large and as, you know, complex as you want it to be. And then at the same time, inside that dream, there is this one individual that we identify with and say, ah, that is me. And so that is the game that is being played here. And let's see what Krishna now goes on to say. Here, of course, he's already established that even though I am, I am those influences, I am those gunas, and I am those castes, and I am those people and those influences and their karmas, yet in myself I am ever actionless and I am ever unchanging. Because as long as Krishna or anybody is identified with the consciousness, then all of that is just a part of it. But when we get identified with the individuals in the dream, that's when we get caught up. So Krishna continues and says, Though acting, I am without attachment, nor do I desire any particular outcome from any activity. <laughs> so this is where it gets really confusing. Though acting, I am without attachment, nor do I desire any particular outcome from any activity. Essentially, Krishna is saying, I have no agenda here. It's like God's really saying, it doesn't matter to me. Like, I have no clear, like, this is what I want to see happen. We believe somehow that God's very involved. Like, think about it from, again, the dreamer's perspective, right? The dream's just playing out. What's the agenda of a dream? I mean, the dream can have many things going on inside it. But what's the agenda? Is there an agenda to the dream? When the consciousness of the dreamer is just in, in this restful, blissful state, the dream's just an expression of his 
own being does he have an agenda in there for every individual in your dream do you have an agenda in your dream for every individual you know sometimes the dreams are good sometimes they're not so good in the dream we definitely say oh, i wish i could be you know very famous or whatever your dream ends up being or you're being chased by you know some bad guys in your dream you really want to escape them so in the dream it seems like there are clear agendas my agenda is to escape this horrific moment that i'm experiencing and get to a safe space but is that the agenda of consciousness so it gets a little tough here because krishna is essentially saying it's like saying if arjuna had not what if arjuna when he came and had the opportunity to choose whether krishna or his army with duryodhan if arjuna had said well i i actually choose your army it's like would krishna have gone oh no my goodness my whole plan is destroyed i had wanted arjuna so i needed him to say i want you otherwise this whole ideas that i had of how the geeta is going to come out you think krishna would have responded then and there to the moment ah oh, okay you don't need it fine and the entire course of the mahabharat and of the geeta would be completely different for all we know or in some other way it would have manifested one way or the other in the way it did so what is god's involvement in this process is an interesting thing and again to understand consciousness you have to understand and the nature of action we're understanding again this these three realities and these three realities in the scriptures are uh, expressed as om tat sat in the christian tradition it is represented as father son and holy spirit om tat sat so there's not one you know expression of the same reality but there are three layers you can always almost say that are working together so you've got sat which is consciousness removed from creation itself which is where and what we are aspiring towards that krishna consciousness that infinite omnipresent state of satchitananda then you've got om om is when that consciousness goes out to vibrate and create the dualistic world that is om om is absolutely everything and then you've got tat and tat is the individualized identified ego through which sat and om is being expressed so it's really it's not you know so here i am and i say i am working oh i am the one right now who are, who is explaining to you the geeta but so that's where we are trapped but behind me is the power of om and behind the power of om is the power of sat which is pure consciousness and the pure consciousness has no agenda the pure consciousness is not saying i i really want the geeta to be expressed every thursday evening so you know i just really want it it doesn't particularly care well because it is the geeta and it is already the it is thursday and it is the world and it is the universe it's like it has no agenda it's not like oh i want to create a beautiful table i am already the beautiful table so i have no real agenda to create anything but it is the tat it is the individualized you and i that creates the agenda for the divine so, uh, our guru paramanth yogananda would say there are many things babaji would have 
see happen in the world but because of the lack of willing channels a lot of it doesn't manifest so that's an interesting way to look at how god functions babaji could have and would have seen many things happen in the world so let's take for example babaji let's assume babaji is really interested in peace world peace god's really interested in world peace if god wanted world peace he could snap his <laughs> metaphysical fingers and boom world peace all of us suddenly have thoughts of harmony and love i mean it's not going to take god a lot of hard work to manifest world peace but why is there not world peace because god doesn't want it because he wants it because it's up to us the question is what do we want and this is what master said our guru said baba ji could do many things but because of the lack of willing channels many things don't happen so until baba ji doesn't see one person whose heart aches for world peace and he is at simultaneously open to allowing sat and the power of om to express through him then baba ji can manifest world peace through that individual similarly for us so god is responding solely to us if you want to grow god wants you to grow if you don't want to grow god doesn't want you to grow he has no agenda it's such so hard to even contemplate because on one hand he's like god really wants the light to win and he wants these wonderful things to happen and he wants everyone to ascend into the light but god's already the light god's already everyone god doesn't even see us as some individualized entrapped egos he already sees us as full light manifested as a part of him i mean so when we think about the divine this is where when remember when we started the autobiography of a yogi class uh the first lines that yogananda talks about when he says that the indian the characteristic features of the indian tradition is the you know has always been the search for eternal truths and the concomitant disciple guru relationship and we spent a lot of time on that disciple guru rather than guru disciple because the onus is on the disciple here the onus is on the devotee because krishna is saying though acting i am without attachment nor do i desire any particular outcome all krishna is looking for are willing instruments through whom his consciousness can be expressed and then it is their agendas that he will express it's a really really hard one to wrap our minds around let's see what continue and see what he says then so he said this though acting i am without attachment nor do i desire any particular outcome from any activity he similarly who is one with me and identified with my nature here he's talking about sat that pure consciousness is unfettered by the desire for the fruits of action So when we finally unite ourselves with the divine then we will start to see the universe 
the way God sees the universe. Now, I like the word acting because Krishna says, though acting, I am without attachment. And naturally, it makes you think about, say, movies, right? Acting. What is the role of the actor? Is the role of the actor to express his character to the best of his ability? But what if the actor was like, oh, you know, I don't like my character. I wish, I wish in this, this character won the girl also and became really rich and became very famous. And, oh, I don't like the ending. Now, if he were to spend all his time, time worried about what attachments he has and how he wished and what expectations he has for the character, all of his energy would go out in not being able to play the character as it is written. So Krishna is saying, I have no agenda. Does the actor have an agenda of how his character's role weaves into the movie? Uh, you know, once he's in the character, he's in the character as it is written. And so for each of us, we have to start tuning into what is it that has been written for each of us. And this is that which has been written has not been written by God. In the sense, everything's written by God because there is only God. But it's actually been written by us through our own karma and through our, the own particular trajectory we've created back towards God. And if we want that, then Krishna will work through us with no particular agenda except to fulfill our agenda. Understanding this as the nature of right action, the wise, since earliest times, have acted dutifully. Be like them. Now this is again, it's just hard, you know, it's, it's hard for us to really tune into these realities. What does it mean to act dutifully? So here's this, all the wise people know I should not have any particular, you know, desire for the fruits of my action and I'm only going to act dutifully. Now, remember we talked about Om. So Om is like this connection between Sat and Tat, between consciousness and the individualized potential for that consciousness, which is the ego right now for each of us. And Om is that connection between the two. And for us, what is Om? Om is Prana, life force. The entire universe is made of this energy. And so that's how we act in this world. Consciousness through the uh, channel of our prana and life force manifests through the ego in this world. So let's assume we have, say, you know, 100 units of prana, just as an example. I have 100 units of life force. 100 units represents the full potential of my being. So in 100 units, most of us have 10 units that are already being used up in the desire for this kind of an outcome in life. Another six units are being used in uh, the attachment to these certain people in life. Another 12 units are being used in resisting certain things that are coming away, resisting our karmas, resisting our responsibilities, resisting that which we think we don't like. Another sev se several units are being utilized in creating something that isn't coming our way but really that we really really want so you've got all these units of yourself or of om of prana already occupied in so many things what we're left with is the remaining 5 10 12 15 each of us have different 
units available and free to actually channel towards the fulfillment of life itself. So even when I think about success, for most people success doesn't come is because they just have these X number of units that are free enough inside them to be channeled towards the fulfillment of that success. Because the majority of our pranic units are already occupied. One's going here, one's going there, one's pushing something else, one's pulling something else. And none of them are actually in harmony with one another. The wise is he. That is why the wise is he who has no agenda, as in who's not concerned about the fruits of his actions, which means no units are being scattered anywhere else and all hundred units are available just to express. And that is when we are able to express God fully, when those hundred units become available to us, which means when they're not being used and scattered in all other expectations, desires, attachments, hopes, dreams, wants, dislikes, likes. And then he says, Krishna, trying to help clarify it further, but as you'll see, it doesn't necessarily clarify it. What indeed are action and inaction? Even the wise can become confused on this point. I will explain the distinction, armed with which knowledge you will be freed from all evil. Evil, remember, we established before as a dharma. Anything that creates karma draws us away from the divine. Over here, we're calling evil. The nature of action is difficult to comprehend. Just as we right, right now said, the nature of action is difficult to comprehend because there are these three layers. Sat, Om, Tat. All three of them participate. To understand it, know the difference between right action, wrong action, and inaction. Okay, let's see what Krishna has to say about these three different kinds. He is a yogi of true discernment who sees inaction in action and action in inaction. Let's say that again if we haven't, aren't confused enough. He is a yogi of true discernment who sees inaction in action and action in inaction. Okay. So Krishna is saying, a true yogi is one who sees inaction in action and action in inaction. Now what does that mean? Let's take the first. Inaction in action. When you unite your awareness and recognize that it is only consciousness that is expressing itself, and that the ego actually is not the doer at all, that is when you experience inaction in action, which means while I'm fully acting, just as Krishna said, I am acting. Krishna is not saying I'm just sitting around because I have nothing to do, because I have no agenda, so I'm just going to sit around. No, I'm acting. But I am not acting. The little Shurjo is not acting. God is acting through me. Let's think about, say, a hammer. Now, 
a hammer needs the carpenter to be picked up and to bash the nail with. Now the hammer thinks he's the one who's doing the job. But if there is no carpenter, the hammer is just sitting around. And if the hammer is not available, then the job's not going to be done. So the divine carpenter has no particular role. But when he sees a hammer, he can use a hammer. But we, as the hammer, start thinking, ah, I'm the one who's bashing that nail. And I am so important. And if I am the only thing that can do this job. But we forget that it's that divine hand flowing through us, flowing through each of us. So when I realize that it's just God, it's Krishna acting through me, then in my activity, I am inactive. And only then can God be fully active. So the yogi is he who in action sees inaction. And then he sees action in inaction. What does that mean now? Means there are certain things that we can do that would seem like we're not doing anything, which is any, which is the best example for which is meditation. So for the yogi, he sees that the real action that he needs to do happens actually in inactivity. So many people say, it's like, you know, what am I doing? I'm just sitting here and I'm not doing anything. But the yogi realizes, and again, the power of Kriya Yoga, especially the way our guru taught it to us, is that in every Kriya, we're actually living an equal amount of one year of our karma. In inactivity of just sitting there and doing a very specific technique that seems outwardly to be doing nothing at all. I'm living one year of my karma. <laughs> then if I go around like tinkering around with life, hoping that I'm working it all out. So the yogi first has these two realities to him. One is in action. He's trying constantly to be inactive so that God can be active through him. And then he chooses those activities that seem to be inactivity, but in them he's actually so active that he's working out so much of his karma. So you've got activities like stillness. It's very, 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 very hard to be still. You've got activities like introspection that seem like, what's this guy doing? I'm not doing anything. But inwardly you are working out so much. There's so much real activity going on. You know, being calm rather than being nervous. So for people who are nervous and restless, we see them and we look at them and we're like, wow, look at these people, they're so active. And somebody who's really calm, really still, and we think that they are not acting at all. But they're really acting on a much deeper level. So Krishna is really helping us see that you've got these two realities. When you're acting, you have to be able to tune into the inactivity of the ego and feel God going through you, which is 
I am not the doer, God is the doer. And then take those activities that seem to be that I'm not doing much, but in there as a yogi, you're actually working out a lot of your karma. He is wise among human beings, for he has attained the goal of all action and is free. What is the goal of all action? Freedom. All our activity that we do is towards bringing us to that state of freedom. Freedom from karma, freedom from ego bondage. And when we realize that in our activity God's going, doing it through, no karma is created. When in our meditations we can burn up the karma just through these inactive, seemingly inactive state of being, no karma is created. He who never acts motivated by personal desire, whose ego-binding karma has been consumed in the fire of wisdom, such a one alone may be considered wise. So he is wise who never acts motivated by personal desire. Now this seems very... Let me do the next one as well because I want to talk about the wise having relinquished attachment to the fruits of action, being ever contented and free in the self, do not really act even if they appear to be intensely busy. Now from our perspective, this is not an easy thing to attain because I can't tell you in your work, I mean, I would like to tell you, but if I'm being realistic, in my work, how can I not have ego-motivated desires? With my family, how can I not want to provide for them better and see my child really grow? How can I not be attached to the well-being of the people in my who, are, who I'm responsible for? How can I not be interested in growing and doing better in my work, in success, in outward, you know, uh, growth and expansion? So it's hard for us to kind of say, okay, I'm going to have to really try hard to not, because when we do that, then we have to be fake. I'm not interested in anything. Then I have to become indifferent. Then I have to, you know, become lazy because I don't know how to be active and not be active. So then I only know how to be lazy, how to be indifferent, how to say I'm contented so I don't have to put out any energy, you know, I don't, I'm not looking for the promotion so I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to become tamasic, I'm just going to do, you know, I'm just going to do the least amount because I don't want that promotion. So it doesn't work that way. And so what's the best way to prepare ourselves for this? And this maybe is where we can begin to close our talk today. What's the best way to prepare? Because it's not easy in your work, in your home, in your daily life to not be ego-motivated. And the answer to that is seva. Each of us needs to learn and have a seva to do. Because seva is our simple little acts where you can practice what it feels like, where God is the doer, and that even though I'm active, I have no agenda. I'm not even attached to the, dis to the fruits of whatever this seva may bring. Now the thing with seva, of course, is that <laughs> the seva has to be done with the right attitude as well. The seva needs to be 
especially in the beginning, very humble, very humbling, very simple. The more complex the seva, the bigger the seva, the very easy it is for the ego to get active again. For most people, and this is not true for all, but it tends to be, they're, they join, you know, we've seen this in a few people, they come, within a few months they're already, you know, they want to serve, I mean, there's this desire to act, you know, to act and to give, but they, they want to serve at this level already. Want to teach, want to share, want to be, you know, be seen and known and heard. And it's not egoic, but the ego naturally gets active in that process. When Narayani and I first came onto the spiritual path, especially through Ananda, through our Guru, we started <laughs> really, really, you know, really, 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 really low. Narayani started with what? Housekeeping, yeah, washing things, big parts of everyone's <laughs> the cleaning <kitchen. laughs> the toilets, working in the kitchen, making, you know, little altars for the events. When I first came, I was working construction as a manual laborer, <laughs> lifting up bricks and cement and rocks and throwing them and digging, you know, pits, farming cleaning, maintenance. And it was so good because these things don't require any real like, oh, how will I do this? Everyone will see how wonderful I did. It's just like, okay, I have to lift these bricks and move them. The simplicity and the humility of the task allowed us to say, oh, okay, God is doing this. God is moving every brick. We never just kind of like, okay, now we're going to, you know, present these teachings. And I mean, there's always a risk. And Narayani and I have to keep checking each other. Fortunately, we have one another to keep ourselves in check. Is to all, you know, never get carried away by the outward role that we're now being called to play. Because it's very tricky. The ego is very subtle. Even in seva, it will find a way for us to. So for each of us, it's important, especially when you come onto the spiritual path, is to find something that's simple, small, humble, humble, and to do that. And to train yourself. Because you're not going to be able to suddenly do it with your family. If you try to do it with your family now, as I said, it'll end up being more indifferent. You won't know how that, how that feels like. You don't know what it feels like to let God flow through you. But if it's just mopping the floor, that's actually very easy to let God flow through you. In your own home, you can try this. Just mopping the floor. Ah, oh, look, this is God moving my hand. Ah, look how clean it is. Oh, how beautiful it is. No agenda, no final thing. I'm not looking for everyone in my house to clap and say, how beautifully you mopped the entire house. No, it's just, it's so simple. It's so unassuming. And you, we have to, have to, have to, have to find a seva to do in this world as a preparation for our consciousness to learn how sat, om and tat come together.
because right now we live in more in this tat in the ego identity creating this false idea that god wants some magic to express through me he will only respond as you approach me i respond that way you say i want you i'll come to you and i will help you want me better you say i don't want you i won't come to you and i'll just let you do what you're doing he's not saying ah oh, why is shudra not coming to me when is shudra going to i'm already his i'm already one with him narayan is already one with god he has no agenda here with us how we approach him is how he'll respond to us so think about how you're going to be able to create this concept of god is the doer and how you begin to embrace these inactive practices of meditation introspection stillness calmness as the real activity that needs to be done because that is what neutralizes karma and as he says finally even if they act oh they do not act even if they appear to be intensely busy and this is how the saints work they look busy swami kriyananda wrote 150 books and 400 pieces of music built communities worldwide traveled everywhere gave lectures but at the end of the day what would he say is like i've done none of this because everything i was just letting my guru work through me and he says and this is how i've been able to do it and this is how anybody could do it if you let your guru work through you and that becomes that's the job narayani and i are on how much can we let our guru work through us when we do that things work out really well and don't create karma when we don't do that things may still work out well because you know we have some skills but then it entraps us further and binds us further and so that those are our two choices and uh, <laughs> krishna is making it clear enough for us to see how we can approach those two choices all right Ariani you have thoughts I have two thoughts that I hope they would be helpful at the beginning Shurjo was explaining how much energy gets scattered outwardly constantly because we are not able to perform every activity with our full concentrated attention and then we complain why we are not achieving any results in meditation the truth is we are not able to train our mind even in our activity this morning i got a little bit triggered but it was a good lesson for me because i was talking to shurjo and i had something important to tell him i thought so and he was listening to me i know he was listening to me but he was checking his phone he was doing something and he was doing like four times at the same time and i was there trying to call his attention and suddenly i realized this is something that i also do that's one of the greatest impediments that are not allowing me to make of each activity the greatest success of the day 
each one of us, when we talk to other people, when we are cooking, when we are cleaning, when we are writing an email, we are dealing with thousand things at the same time. So we are not training ourselves in the battle of activity to be fully concentrated in one thing at a time. So that's number one. Let's make a point throughout this week to start training ourselves how much concentrated, one single pointedly energy I'm giving to my 30 minutes meditation, to my one hour seva, to my one hour cooking, to my 30 minutes uh, conversation with somebody else, and just make a conscious effort. This is something that needs to be practiced consciously daily. Secondly, when we come into the middle of that activity, Shuja was giving the example of the hammer or the worker. So we should start seeing our activities and our seva, whatever that might be. What is this seva reinforcing in me? To what I'm being identified with? With the hammer? Or is this helping me to be identified with the worker, with the larger picture? So this is like a, almost a secret if you want to feel that you are doing and performing your activities with the right attitude. Is this activity helping me to expand myself, to include others in this activity? I'm becoming um, more embracing, more uh, kindly motivated, to do this to help other people, or I'm performing this activity to become more selfish, to nourish my ego a little bit more, because when we start giving emphasizes, emphasize to that hammer, we'll start developing either one of these two tendencies. The ego becomes proud, because I accomplished that activity so beautifully, or whether we become really selfish and very self-involved. So I would say at the end of each activity, let's say that we all perform at the, you know, throughout the span of a day, let's say 20 activities. How do you feel at the end of each activity. At the end of my cooking, how do I feel? Do I feel stressed out or do I feel so happy because I have been able to cook this meal for all my family? At the end of cleaning whatever, how do I feel that I have not done whatever I needed to do or do I feel perfectly satisfied because I have done the best I could? So I think a good thing to keep double checking if we are performing our activities with the right attitude is the feeling that that activity gives us at the end of it. 
and then we can check according to how we feel in our consciousness. Do I feel uplifted? Do I feel satisfied? Then something has gone right <laughs> in that activity. Or do I feel even more restless? Do I feel more worried? Do I feel more obsessed with what will happen? Well, perhaps we may have not performed that activity with the right consciousness, the right attitude. And this is something that each one of us will need to start. We, we need to become detectives, you know, from our own activities and be our own judges, not in the harsh way, but okay, let's see how, what I did in the last two hours. How did I feel? And, and start double checking and making and make any adjustment that needs to be made. And whenever you think that you didn't do that well as you thought, or you didn't identify it, you know, with what you hoped to be identified, doesn't matter. The next activity, you will have another opportunity. So make of this opportunity, or of this activity, an opportunity to develop that sense of who um, am I identified with? With the little ego that wants to be pleased, recognized, acknowledged, and proud? Or do I want just to feel like so free from any personal involvement that God himself can flow through me? So I would say this could be a good homework for us throughout this week. And let us know how, how it goes. <laughs>